Welcome to Amona Moment, a podcast hosted by the Museum of Northwest Art. On Saturday, December 14th, 2019, from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., the Museum of Northwest Art hosted a deep dive into Eve Deicher's psyche. Eve's husband and exhibit curator, Lanny Bergner, artist Anne Chadwick-Reed, and poet Jane Allen participated in a panel discussion focusing on four of Eve Deicher's pivotal works and Eve's poetry and writings pertaining to them. Jane Allen also read her poem, Tree Figure, which she wrote for the exhibit. afternoon to hear our discussion about Eve Deicher's work. It's a rainy afternoon, so it's especially nice to see everyone turn out. I want to begin our discussion today by thanking Joanna Sykes, the director of the museum, and the museum staff for supporting our conversation. My name is Anne Chadwick-Reed, and I knew Eve as a cohort. Okay. Okay, is this better? Yes. So, my name is Anne Chadwick-Reed, and I was a cohort of Eve's. We both taught at Skagit Valley College. She and I were there together for over 10 years. She and I were also together in several exhibitions, and we served on the board of Anchor Art Space in Anacortes. Um, to my left is another good friend of Eve's, Jane Allen, a wonderful poet and photographer. Really happy to have her today, and Jane was also involved with Eve at Anchor Art Space. And the two of us are here to talk with Lanny Bergner, her husband, about the exhibition that's downstairs. We want to recognize, before we begin, the complexity and mystery that makes Eve's work so compelling and reveals her bravery at conveying a psychological landscape. When she was seen as a private, polite, considerate, and quiet individual. We begin our discussion by identifying some general themes that may help focus our discussion. We will touch on the influence primarily of the theater in forming our discussion of the work. And we will also talk about the influence of feminist and social issues, art, dance, family, religion, and the natural world. These characteristics appear in images of expressive figures, dynamic narrative formats, and personal symbolism to express themes of duality, anxiety, confinement, detachment, and escape. These she shares using charcoal and oil stick and a mastery of unconventional materials that require time-consuming processes. In order to further focus our discussion, we will limit our analysis to four works, two of which she did in Philadelphia and two of which she did here in Washington State. To keep the discussion timely, and because there is so much to say about the work, questions will be taken at the end of our discussion. So 
without further ado, Lanny will begin our discussion. Uh, the first week, uh, first work we're going to talk about is called the Dweller. Uh, but what I want to do first is just give you a little, just a little bit of background about Eve. Um, and this image here was taken in Philadelphia. It's where she, um, it's where we met. Um, prior to this, uh, she got her, her BFA at the Virginia Commonwealth University, and her degree was in art history, uh, not studio art. So she really didn't take that many studio art classes. So she had more of a scholarly background. Um, and, and after VCU, uh, she moved back to Philadelphia, and that's where she grew up, and moved back to her family home. This was about 1984. And we met in 1986, which is at this point here uh, at Fleischer. I was hired as a gallery coordinator there, and she was an administrative assistant. And then we started dating about, uh, about two months after uh, working there together, and then we dated for eight years before we got married. Yeah, long engagement. Uh, oops. Yeah, this is at the end of uh, our time at Fleischer. And this is uh, 1994, and that was also the year that she made The Dweller, uh, the piece we're going to be talking about. And this is in front of the Fleischer Art Memorial with uh, uh, the education director there, Nancy Wright. Sorry, this is kind of an awkward thing here. i got to move the slides. Um, and while in Philadelphia, uh, she also uh, did some summer teaching at the University of the Arts. And, and you know, as far as doing her studio work, she did that at her mother's house out in Bryn Mawr. And they had like a, a townhouse kind of building. Um, and two bed or three bedrooms upstairs, and one of the, the bedrooms she used as a studio. And theater and dance were important influences of her work. Uh, she also showed a fair amount in Philadelphia at the time, and she was even in an exhibition at the Alternative Museum in New York City, and also had her only solo show at uh, the college, uh, Philadelphia College of Textile and Science. And as a person, she was introverted, uh, reserved, very sweet, very kind, loved animals, and was extremely private and kept to herself. It wasn't important for her to get feedback on her work. She never consulted me about conceptual things on her work. She knew what she wanted, and she did it. Uh, the only things she kind of consulted me on were technical things, like how to build a, you know, a stretcher for paintings or things like that. So the Dweller was created during that last year in Philadelphia. I, uh, prior to that, for about eight years, she used to take photographs of herself. And this was all her theater background. And uh, so she continued to do that for almost 10 years. And this is taken in my living space in my studio in North Philadelphia. I had a studio on one side and a living space on the other, kind of that loft experience. 
And this is a photograph of the dweller. I don't remember seeing the actual drawing while in Philly. I never, and he also wrote a poem on this work, and I never saw that. And I didn't even see that until about three months before this exhibition opened, just after going through all of her, her writings. And it came as a really real surprise to me that she even wrote anything like that. I knew that she made lists, that's how she conceptualized her work, but I had no idea she wrote poems that dealt fairly specifically with uh, these pieces. And now what I'd like to do is read the poem, um, The Dweller. And you'll notice on, there's a reference mark on the top right-hand corner of the text. And it says, water, inside, outside, and sex. Sitted on a simple chair, the dweller is narrow in the closet. Stones placed at the holes of her mouth and groin wait to be rolled away. The dweller's large, unsymmetric head labors on small shoulders that make the sign of the cross and pass into the spinal tract, running down deeper off the chair. All that occupies her stained dress and titanic pair of black galoshes. Bells encircle the dweller's wrist like razor blades. Be silent, be silent. A hovering fear of cumulative shudders is always near. Be silent, be silent. All inside rests in a bowl-shaped hull, which sometimes sits wet or dry on water or land. The dweller's screams are blocked by that stone and sent down deeper off the chair, landing in curled toes that swim in the swollen darkness. Inside this vessel, this closet, this box, this body, this brain, this spine, this pelvis sits life or death, a Pandora's box. Outside an anchored boat just above water can balance stability, sedating a dead calm. Then dread casting around the dweller's little bottom slips and quivers down deeper off the bark. Soon the stones must roll, and soon the box must open. And now we begin our discussion. One of the things that we noticed about Eve's writing is that she writes as if it's stage direction. You'll notice that from that first line, which says, seated on a simple chair, it's as if she's setting the stage or setting a scene to be contemplated by the viewer, as if Eve is the actor, and then she's looking towards her audience. And in fact, if you view this, stage here you can see she's she's almost she's framed in the way a stage would frame however it's also that it appears that we're looking into a box a box that is pretty obviously confining her and one of the themes that we were talking about is that sense of confinement that's in the box here so it's not only the box that seems to confine her, but it's also those stones that are in her mouth and in her groin, which sort of allude to a sense of religion. She even mentions in the poem the cross that occurs between the shoulders and the head, and she uses the terms 
rolling away the stones, which of course refers to the biblical story. As well as Sisyphus, think of this, the story of Sisyphus, this constant struggle of pushing the stones. Yeah, she also had an interesting kind of religious background. Uh, her father was Catholic, and so early in life she was taken to, you know, catechism and uh, different uh, things with the church and was around nuns quite a bit. And then a little bit later, her mother became a Christian scientist, and he became interested in Christian science. And so throughout her life, she had a, a certain spiritual sense about that, and then it kind of turned a little more into the natural world uh, type thing. But religion, uh, spirituality was always a strong thing of hers. And, and as such, too, we can see the anxiety that's in the figure. It's a, a remarkable the way she uses the eyes. And those also existed in the photograph of her that really peer dramatically at the viewer. So she, as if she's aware of the viewer looking back at her condition. So the confinement happens not only within the box itself and the stones itself, but in the anxiety that's expressed in her, in her face, which also alludes to social issues related to feminist ideas of, of the female confinement. I think this is the first introduction, too, of her use of duality or opposition, contradiction, because even up at the top you'll see inside, outside, and in the poem she describes what's inside and what's outside. So she's, she's using those dualities in this piece. It's kind of interesting because Eve wasn't a confrontational person. Uh, like she kind of avoided conflict, and yet her a lot of her images and stuff they're very assertive. Uh, you know, she's staring directly at you. Uh, you know, she's revealing a lot about herself and her physical body and things. But in real life, she just wasn't like that. Uh, you know, she. Yeah, she was a very passive person. Uh, she wasn't. Uh, she wasn't competitive. Um, yeah. She did her thing. She did her thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, yeah. sort of very privately did. Yeah. One of the most interesting aspects, too, about I mean everything is, but one of them for me is the boat that's at the bottom. And at first, I couldn't. You know, I was trying to imagine whether the box was in the boat or outside the boat or going into the boat. And the boat seems to be maybe some sort of an escape vessel or some kind of celestial boat. She uses these uh, personal symbolism that she's created on the, on the front, those sort of circular forms there that again have that sort of sense of, uh, of duality in them. And it's interesting to me that her use of materials here is very unconventional. So the bottom of the boat she makes with charcoal, and which you know appears to be sort of soft in the way that she has moved it around and softened the edges of the boat. But then the top of the boat is made from grit that she applied to pieces of paper and stripped them and then created this kind of three-dimensional effect. So the piece becomes somewhat three-dimensional 
at the bottom, but it also consists of this sort of odd, unconventional use of material. Yeah, in earlier writings she did, she, she wrote about the boat and vessel as being an escape. Um, and her, uh, her father passed away when she was 11 years old, but her favorite memory of her father was taking her sailing. And so she associated being out in the water as an enjoyable time of hers with her father. And, and again, a way of kind of escaping. Yeah, and on the in, in the inside-outside, the inside is, there's a great, the inside is the Pandora's box, but outside is an anchored boat. So you're getting that sense of stability after that inside turmoil. One of the things I think is interesting about Eve's work is she always seems to include some kind of dialogue. And in this one, she has the be silent, be silent. That again sort of refers to that fear and anxiety. And that's an interesting concept in that if you look at the way that the bells, she has these, she calls them bells that are dangling off the wrist. They really don't look like bells. They look like some kind of an insect form that is going to use pinchers, perhaps, on the figure as well. Yeah. And, and one more thing, too, that, that Eve does is she bears the inside of the figure, so you're really looking through the skin to that sort of inner her vertebrae. And she uses this again and again where you're consciously aware of the, verte of the vertebrae. One thing I find interesting about the piece is the, are the finger marks on the side on the black. It's like, and she did this in a lot of work where she would throw something in there that would just twist it enough to somewhere else. Uh, in that case, like the, is like a someone trying to get in or is someone sliding down and the, the finger marks are kind of doing that. And it's just a, an interesting that thing that she did that makes you question, you know, why is that? And I know she, she never wanted to make a clear narrative. That was never her intent. It always had to have a lot of different twists to it and uh, if it was too clear, I think she would be suspect of it, that it, it just wasn't good art. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she likes surrealism. And, um, yeah, and, and her pieces evolve, you know, because she, she tended to work kind of slowly on things, so they, there was an opportunity there to evolve things. And so she never kind of kept it necessarily with her initial vision. She allowed it to change, and that's where I think where those bells on her wrists, you know, become these little pincher creatures. Uh, I think she just allowed it to go there because she found these little pincher-like things and thought, well, that was a good solution to that, and went there instead of actually hanging bells there. Mm -hmm. I guess, I can I just say one yeah. last thing? Yeah. The last line of that poem is really... Uh, breathtaking because soon the stones must roll and soon the box must open. That, that word soon carries, you know, you hold your breath with that and so you're left holding your breath. Yeah, there's a lot of anticipation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next one, uh, work we're going to talk about, 
is uh, returning again and again to bed, um, which is this piece here. And this was, this actually wasn't created in Philadelphia, but it was conceived in Philadelphia. It was conceptualized there. And at that point, uh, this was 1994, and we had gotten married at uh, May 23rd in 94, and I left to come here to Washington to build a house and studio. And she stayed in Philadelphia. And she came out a couple of times in the meantime. But for the most part, she was in Philly. And still working at the Fleischer Art Memorial and probably teaching in the summer at the University of the Arts. But during that time uh, is when I think that she created the, the, this conceptual text and poem and some of the, the drawings that led up to this piece. And I'm just going to show you a few. This is when we first moved here to Washington. Uh, and we kind of embraced the rural lifestyle uh, when we got here. Um, and and I, I grew up here and grew up in Anacortes. And his father, uh, who he died of lung cancer when she was 11 years old, and wanted the family actually to move here to the Northwest. So it wasn't hard to convince uh, Eve to move here. And actually, that kid isn't ours. Uh, uh, we borrowed him from a friend. <laughs> but it, it was kind of that American Gothic kind of look. Uh, and the, the, the one on the right, that's Eve teaching at Santa Valley College. She, when she, we moved here, she started teaching right away there, teaching art, and did that for until uh, 2016, about four months before she passed away. And this is me and Eve and Rocky. Uh, when Eve moved out here, her, her mother moved out here too. And so uh, she lived with us for 10 years before she had to enter a nursing facility. And, uh, yeah, Alma May, everyone had to call her Rocky. That was, uh, and that was kind of the personality she had. <laughs> yeah, but she was, she was very supportive of Eve's art and stuff. So she was, um, yeah, she was all right in her own way. Um, these are uh, the kind of conceptual notes uh, that Eve did, kind of, figuring out how she was going to create uh, returning again and again to bed. Uh, and like I say, this was, I'm pretty sure it was done in Philadelphia be before she created the piece. And now what I want to do is read the poem, uh, returning again and again to bed. In blind silence, the Ophelia hovered just above the pile of mattresses. Protruding through the black door or back door of a veiled gown, her long spine of dents and nicks curved down to her tail. Off with her head, a chilling pitched voice cracked through the black like an arrow landing in her very white skin. Above her shoulders rested a block of black which traveled down either side of her back and quickly cut and ran to the bottom of the mattress. Behind Ophelia, a lit wall, two towering shadows stood to the left and to the right of her bony spine. As they danced, a howling wind began and diminished, 
the shadow of puppets to tiny little spasms. Writing across Ophelia's skin, they pinched like a moving tattoo. On that moment, her wings were clipped, and she dropped to the bed. Ophelia tilted to one side and pitched off the mattress. Recovering, she pulled off the top mattress, then climbed upon the next and stood front, returning again and again to bed. A light blue cast on her skin, in distant in the distance, a crooked-sounding nursery rhyme oozed from the dark. Ophelia hinged joints at her wrists and ankles began to cloud. Her hands and feet detached, and emerging from the mist glided away. She looked after her extremities. Above her head, a snake-like colossal strand twisted across the sky. Bells hung from its scaly body which shuddered from time to time. Each full mouth detonation pealed an ear-splitting chime. Out of joint, she braced herself dead still. The serpent splintered into two roads, revealing a dark velvet vault above. Ophelia's body, now encased in ice, weighed heavy on the mattress. Devil's got your tongue? A sharp voice kept falling inside the ice, landing in her heels. A celestial being miraged above each road. Their appendages radiated from their centers like little stars. The dancer to the east or to the west extended all movement away from the body. On point, the toes moved over the dirt. The dancer to the east flexed all movement toward the body. The flexed feet hugged and kissed the earth, melting to a cold, wet heat, Ophelia rolled off the mattress. Recovering, she pulled off the mattress, then climbed upon the next, returning again and again to bed. As a watchtower, Ophelia's neck lengthened while she stood staring at the dancers. Space and ground merged, and the balls of her feet undulated beneath her. A dense, dark drum vibrated in Ophelia's ear, traveling around her head, down the back of her throat and passing through each organ. The sound seized her posture. The three carried the same gesture and breath for a time. A crown of secreting hot spots appeared at her hairline rolling down the face. Her panting slowed to a steaming bag. Ophelia closed her mouth and her head fell beside her neck. Now flat, she was embedded in the mattress. Hesitation was laying on top of her. Backsliding, she left the mattress. Recovering, she pulled off the mattress and climbed upon the next, returning again and again to bed. As she knelt down, a very long black funnel appeared on her head. Some muscles of her face contracted and released energy inside the pumped-up flu. As the tip touched the ceiling, it inscribed a weaving of symbols. On sore knees, she was praying for a higher IQ. The motion of muscles shot her cerebellum right through the ceiling. Ophelia's round eyes snatched up the full moon to protect her body. 
She rotated off the mattress on flying, floating knees. Recovering feet down, she pulled off the mattress and climbed upon the last, returning again and again to bed. She hung her fire, closed her eyes good night. And now we'll begin our discussion. There are two um, probable allusions right away. Uh, Ophelia, which um, comes from Shakespeare's Ophelia, from Hamlet. And we also, and I, Lanny mentioned that Eve had said something about the princess and the pea, so the mattress idea. So <laughs> Ophelia is a character in Shakespeare's play Hamlet, who is yielding and passive and readily complies with the demands of the men in her life, even when they treat her badly. Her lack of resistance to treacherous behavior is paralleled in her surrender to the water and subsequent drowning, allowing the water to consume her without a fight. She's a figure torn between two contradictory selves, the dutiful female and the woman in control of her own destiny, making her own judgments and decisions. And then, of course, the princess and the pea, we've got, you know, a woman, a bedraggled woman who comes to the castle, and the queen is suspicious of her when she says she's a princess, so she's going to give her a test. And the way, and a real princess is, is highly sensitive, so she puts a pea at the bottom of a stack of mattresses, and... Uh, in the morning, the queen says, how did you sleep? And she says, badly. It was, the bed was lumpy, and I didn't sleep well at all. And, of course, immediately she gets to marry the prince because she was a real princess. <laughs> so feminist issues, of course, are, you know, one of the major themes that we haven't talked about. We haven't and the other thing that comes across is, again, here we're looking at the, at the theater. In the first sentence, she says, in blind silence, quote, the Ophelia hovered. She's setting the stage for us again. And she lays this piece out like a storyboard. It's as if she is laying it out scene by scene that we can follow a line. And luckily, we have this poem that we can actually follow along with. And it includes two dialogue and action. It also has a religious connection to it and then we see the cross form in the center as the storyboard is laid, laid out. And it also then reads from panel to panel like cell to cell that you might see in a storyboard or in a, in a comic book. Yeah, another thing I found interesting about the, the piece at the time she made it uh, we were making that transition from Philadelphia to Washington State, so there's this east-west kind of thing with that snake-like form, and I think that kind of played in uh, just the symbolism she was kind of dealing with. With that, uh, I know when uh, when I got the idea to having this panel discussion, this was the one piece I really wanted help with. <laughs> uh, just because I never I never saw her writing. I never knew she wrote this, uh, and and it was such a layered and complex piece. I just wanted to have a little bit more of an understanding about it, and 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 my, with my limited capacity, uh, 
<laughs> well, and the thing about Eve is that she could hold multiple complex and contradictory ideas in this head of hers. Yeah. They go into one piece, so, yeah. yeah. she really did, yeah. yeah. I enjoy the way that dance places a role, and Eve yeah. took dancing lessons, and she loved to dance, and you'll notice that the figure of her up there at the top that she, she took from her drawings, the way that the hand, the very expressive hand is to the side, looks like a dance move. And that when she shows us the snake forms too, that on to your left, the left side, we have a ballet dancer, the, the west, and on the right side, we have what looks like uh, a dancer that could be from Indonesia or yeah. India. So we see like those, the different ways in which dance itself is playing out as if choreography is a part of this piece as well. Yeah, when we were uh, in Philadelphia, she always took ballet. Uh, that was, um, you know, she probably took it for 10 years there. Uh, so that was a real strong part of her. And for a little while before she uh, was hired at the Fleischer Art Memorial, she worked as a booking agent for Zero Moving Dance Company, which was a modern dance troupe. And we used to go to modern dance performances a quite a bit when we were in Philly. Uh, and just the, you know, the poses she chose there were very classical, you know, feminine beauty poses. Uh, and she knew how to, you know, just the way you hold your hand and stuff to, to represent that uh, was just really amazing. Because I, you know, I remember, I'm the one that took the photographs, but, you know, she did all the... You know, I didn't direct her at all. It was her doing what she did. She knew exactly what she wanted. Uh, uh, she just told you when to yeah. click that yeah, shot. Yeah, when to click yeah. that shot. Right. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, that all of the figures look like they're being sort of acted upon. It's as if um, the figure in the... In, up on above, you've got the uh, shadow puppet figures, the Hawaiian figures that are twitching across her back and irritating her. And then um, her, her extremities leave her body, of course, those expressive parts of the body that she's losing. And then at the bottom of this piece, you'll also see that she's getting hit in the head by, uh, a, actually it's a gourd, that came out of your garden, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and then uh, and then in the end, she has that funnel shape that comes on top of her, and then in the bottom right hand corner, it's if she becomes consumed then um, into into the mattress itself. It's uh, funny that there's one part of the poem where she says she's on her knees and praying for a higher IQ. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a direct reference to her. Uh, because she always felt like she wasn't kind of smart enough, like she was a little slower, or, you know, which is obviously not the case. Uh, but that was a little bit of, um, I don't know, just the way she felt about herself. That, yeah. And she always put personal things in her work. So. And for all of the uh, anxiety and confinement and detachment that's in this piece, she returns again and again to bed. So, I mean, I like to see that as like the dweller confronting the viewer, that there's this ability to continue and move on 
and go on that really comes across uh, in the work. So in Jungian um, psychology, the mattress it has a broad number of uh, meanings, but a uh, place of rest, place of contemplation, place to be alone. And also the other side of that is if mattresses could tell all, you know, and places of mourning, places of secrecy, places of death. So the mattress has immense uh, meaning. I guess I would like to say one more thing, too, that um, this piece has the shape of the theater flats that you'll see down in the work downstairs, those long black flats that are at the edge of the theater. So, again, that comes in. But they become somewhat transparent. And so, so she focuses on those little storytelling cells, but then she begins to introduce some, again, unconventional materials, and I think this might be because now she's here in the West. So she collected scotch broom seeds that were part of that snake-like form, and she also has some... Um, chicken feathers. Chicken feathers that are in there, right. And then the gourd that's down at the bottom. She begins to introduce a little bit of color here as well. So we're beginning to see some use of her materials and the way that she incorporates them uh, in the work shift a little bit. Yeah, when she moved here, she started to, her work changed from what used to be very much uh, drawing-based work, uh, charcoal and oil stick and stuff. And then here she started... Uh, well, introducing other materials in there, but also a lot of sewing and fiber. Uh, and that became increasingly more important in her work, and that kind of continues for the rest of her time here. Okay, uh, okay we're going to move on to um, Breathe. Uh, Breathe was uh, created in uh, 2012. And this was prior to her diagnosis of having lung cancer, uh, which she was diagnosed in 2014. But right before this, she was in a bicycle accident, and and I was with there her at the time. We took we went to the emergency room, and uh, what happened? The the handlebars kind of hit her chest area, and so we had a CT scan done, and. A little bit something showed up in that CT scan. And so then they had a few follow-up uh, scans later, and nothing really changed. So then it was kind of forgotten about. But I think knowing Eve and how she was about things, I'm sure because her father died of lung cancer, a little bit something kind of showed up that she probably, that probably registered with her. Um, And now what I'd like to do is just read the statement that she wrote um, about breathe. It's very short. This work is about the idea to breathe or be able to breathe, whether it is an environmental or physical health issue. Fear can also fibrillate our breathing. I was starting with the image of what actually gives us oxygen, a tree form. A tree form combined with human anatomy. 
of lungs, which also looks like branches or roots, are juxtaposed with a dress, snaps, collar, as well as a skirt of stitched leaves. Um, over on the right-hand side, there, well, first of all, you can see, again, the eaves using unconventional materials. I mean, who would use charcoal with organza? I mean, it's just like two <laughs> opposite kinds of, of materials that you would use one another. And in that, you can, in these images, you can see a lot of detail. One of the things that uh, Eve did was she took a class on st st learning stitching, different kinds of stitching, so different kinds of chain stitching and straight stitching. And, and you can see right, for instance, like uh, on this image on the left-hand side here, the kind of stitches that she used all the way around the lungs that were on the Eve. So that idea of stitching and costumes, again, that relate back to the theater, are showing up again in this piece. Uh, now what we're going to do is uh, Jane is going to read uh, her poem that she wrote specifically for uh, this exhibition and catalog. Uh, Tree figure on Eve Deicher's Breathe from 2012. A tree, a figure. We see both in this arboreal form draped with a sculptural feature of the human anatomy a fabric likeness of lungs, its outline of embroidered organza, while the labyrinth of passages are cut from paper and layered like strata in the exact configuration of roots or branches of a tree. Layered, clawed, reaching this meticulously hand-stitched fascicle of interconnectedness, lungs and tree, each indispensable to the other in their reciprocal existence. But the tree, if we begin there, stands in the thicket of a thousand praises for its single-minded aspiration of giving up oxygen we need to breathe. We see a skirt of cascading leaves, light and dancing, that pirouette in the slightest breath of wind, spinning, fluid, and moving, moving through gravity, the complexities in measured gestures, connected to the ultimate rhythm, a motion sewn in the fabric of the imagination. Airy and solid both, at once, intricate, personal, a perfect vision of courage full of anxiety. The costume, even as its restive snaps and buttons, those means of closure draw together in tight concentration, has the audacious keen composure in all its elements, taken together to embody the play between the pale green haze of day, of living and breathing, and the night of lights dimmed and darkness fallen. There's a subtlety here in this two-sided form, imbued with vibrating opposites, set to circle around and around. But we divine there's more than the eye can see, more where the boundaries meet along each binding line the two dissolve, fuse like an image. 
image fade into one dream, fading as if fading out is the point, dropping light quashed into that space of breath, of emptiness, where the silent pause, as if an open mouth, is always filled with intention, resonance, possibility, its full measure of expression. Now, let it speak. Breathe, wholly taken in, is a lament, wrought, weeping for a future that's indistinct. A voice through a dark scrim, pitched like a stage whisper, that speaks for the sake of the forest, for the tall tree with a cloud-covered crown, being silenced, air abruptly cut, leaving lungs, larynx, and the tree as ghosts from an indifferent death. Everything in us rejects this as a final act. Yeah, now we're going to begin our discussion. Well, we've lost that uh, narrative, narrative, and here we see a personal symbol that we're not looking at a story that's being told necessarily, but we're looking at a single image that has a, a lot to, to represent for it. And of course, it's the natural world. So we see that shift now to a, a real northwest image here, where we see the uh, tree becoming front and center. Uh, Eve used you know, her own figure in so much of her earlier work, and here it's still represented. It's just represented in a sculptural form, you know, with the, the dress-like form. So her body has now become kind of this whole sculpture that she made. Uh, and I just find, find that as an interesting transition from before where she worked for almost 10 years using images of her body to construct her drawings and then to discard all of that really into the actual physical uh, manifestation of it. And we still have that light dark. Yeah, the sort duality of paradox. is throughout this. Piece. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of duality there. Yeah. Yeah. It took her about two years to make this piece. Uh, and she did a lot of sewing on it, and a lot of changes during that time, too. I know she changed the top part of it, for sure, after she had exhibited it in a few shows. But kept working on it. Move on to the next work? Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to, uh, the last piece we're going to talk about is, uh, is called uh, Forest Moonlight. And this was the final work she created. Uh, and I'm, I'm right now I'm going to turn it over to Anne to uh, talk about the exhibit, ex exhibition that it was created for. So in 2014, we had an exhibit called uh, Here and There Topographic Conversations with Morris Graves. And it was something that I was interested in because I knew the Graves' history. I knew he was a recluse, and I knew that he had built a home here in the early 1950s because he was inspired by this area. He was also inspired by other areas along the West Coast. Uh, most importantly, I think, was uh, down by Eureka, California, in Humboldt County. He built a home at what he called the lake. 
he built a home here too, so he had these two different locations that he used for inspiration in his work. So I thought it would be interesting if we had artists that would speak to Graves, even though he had passed away in 2001, sort of from beyond, that we would have a conversation with him with our own work. So we selected four artists from California and four artists from here, Eve, Lanny, myself, and Alan. Right. And um, we went down there. Lanny, Eve, and Alan and I went down to Eureka. We met the other artists, and we were amazed at the similarities that existed in the two areas in terms of, you know, agriculture, well, um, communities, and access to water. So those shows were mounted then, one there, that show, at the Morris Graves Museum of Art, and then it came up here and we had it here at the Museum of Northwest Art as well. And uh, one of the things I think that might have influenced Eve is, first of all, the use of white writing. We had looked at work of both Toby and Graves and their use of white writing in their work, and we also looked at how Graves used uh, the moon uh, in a lot of his work. So that reference to nature in the moon could definitely have been something that Eve was thinking about when she chose to design this piece. Yeah, the, uh, the work was uh, conceptualized before she was diagnosed with cancer. And so that's why the, you know, the white writing and all that became an important part of it. Uh, this is a photograph where she's working on the, the steady for Forest Moonlight, which is exhibited downstairs next to the large piece. Uh, but she was making that during uh, when she was going through chemotherapy. And so this would have been uh, early, very early uh, 2015. And then when she, when she created the large piece, what I found really interesting was in the steady, you know, basically the white forms around the hole there are, are abstract. You know, they're symbols of things. Uh, but in the, the large piece, they turn into bird skeletons. And I think that's, you know, going through this process of going through all this cancer treatment and realizing the sort of inevitability of where that was going to lead, there's a, this real transition from here to somewhere else and it comes out in this piece and just the you know the time it took for her to do it you know she, um you know she mentally she was going through that and it just shows in the large piece that she did this was created uh, in the back room of our house which was only about a 14 by nine foot space she never did have the, the large piece up in, in a studio, so she never saw it hanging, and when it was first exhibited in Eureka, that was the first time it was ever uh, actually hung. Uh, she did have a chance to see it here in the museum when it was here, luckily, uh, but she wasn't well enough to travel down to Eureka. Um, and now I think we'll begin our discussion. Again, we see the theater, those stage flats that are downstairs and we're in returning again and again to bed. 
appear here. It's the same vertical, tall, dark format that she uses in her work. And this, though, to me, represents or looks more like a curtain, you know, the, the fabric curtain. Um, it's interesting here to see that, as Lanny mentioned, those forms that were on the side turn into these the characters of these skeletal birds. And you can see that with the white writing down below and above, they seem to disintegrate down into the earth so that the skeletons and the felt and the white writing are on the outside of that curtain. But then in the center of the curtain, there is a portal. And through that portal, we can see that vertebrae that we saw in earlier work has already moved to the back side of the curtain. With the moon, that mysterious dark moon and the clouds that are above, it's as if we can see an escape from that which is in front to that which is behind. It gives me goosebumps to think this is Eve's final work and here's this, the, the curtain. Again, her ability in the work to show that she's moving on, returning again and again, or whatever it might be. This piece is about escape. Uh, and, of course, you know, as Jane just said, it's, an, it's uh, for me anyway, that escape that is from that anxiety and confinement and detachment that we see in the earlier work. Um, I, I truly was astonished. That the, to see that the theater played such an important role in her work. But I really think that Eve, she may not have been one who felt comfortable on the stage, but she was comfortable enough in her studio to put together these narrative stories to share the same ideas that one might see in the theater, all the way from the costuming and the breath to the story the narrative of the story itself and here you know and, and so much movement in the yeah work. yeah and sound and dialogue mm -hmm. that that goes along with them as well yeah yeah, yeah one thing um, you know Eve put a lot of like sort of a lot of her own anxieties and fears in her work uh, over the years but I think the creating of the work really was a balance for her uh, she put, you know, all that that she was feeling and her disappointments with how people are and, you know, all the kind of the pain that we might project to other, other people. And she put it in her artwork and kind of got it out of herself. And I think here, this is how she dealt with the dying process. Uh, and she, she was not fearful of dying. Uh, she kind of let it happen. Uh, you know, she fought it for over two years. But she just handled it with so much grace, and uh, she was extremely brave about it. And I was always amazed that 
kind of all this anxiety I heard about her over the years, it just did not show up when actually at a time when you think it would, it just wasn't there.